I'm Johnny B. Good, the host of the podcast Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin. This podcast dives deep into the story of Ray Trapani and his company Centratech. I'll explore how 320-somethings built a company out of lies, deceit, and greed. I've been saying since a very young age that I was going to be a millionaire. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. Listen to Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. My whole life, I've been told this one story about my family, about how my great-great-grandmother was killed by the mafia back in Sicily. I was never sure if it was true, so I decided to find out. And even though my Uncle Jimmy told me I'd only be making the vendetta worse, I'm going to Sicily anyway. Come to Italy with me to solve this 100-year-old murder mystery. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the ferryman of souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. Binge the season of The Passage now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Rivals is a production of iHeartRadio. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Rivals, the show about music beefs and feuds and long-simmering resentments between musicians. I'm Steve. And I'm Jordan. And today we're going to talk about the defining feud of West Coast hip-hop, Dr. Dre versus Eazy-E. It's the battle that tore apart N.W.A., one of the most influential rap acts in history, and sparked a diss track battle that only ended with Eazy's tragic AIDS-related death in 1995. But did it ever really end? As Dre goes to sleep each night on his pillow stuffed with hundreds, I wonder how he really feels about his ex-bandmate. Yeah, this is a fascinating feud to me because at its height, it really was one of the pettiest and most vicious beefs in hip-hop history. I mean, yeah, Dre and Eazy, these former bandmates who were just terrible to each other in public. And then Eazy died, and you could see how remorseful Dre was about all of these terrible things that he had said about Eazy. And also how Dre, over the years, went on to try to essentially rewrite history and make it seem... Almost like there really wasn't ever a feud at all, but there was Jordan, and we're here to rehash it all. So, without further ado, let's get into this mess. The story of NWA really begins with Eric Wright, aka Eazy-E, the so-called godfather of gangster rap. And he very famously grew up in the rough LA neighborhood of Compton. And as one of his associates would later say, you have to have a role play to stay safe in those streets. And you were either a thug, a player, an athlete, a gangster, or a dope man. Otherwise, according to Easy's associate, there was only one role left to you, the role of victim. And Easy was a small guy, and so he had to keep himself safe, so he chose dope man for a time, dealing drugs. But after his cousin was shot and killed, he decided that he could make a better living in the emerging L.A. hip-hop scene, which was really growing in popularity at that point. And it was around this time in 1986 that he met Andre Young, a.k.a. Dr. Dre, who soon became his best friend. Yeah, I think it's pretty well documented at this point that, like, Eazy-E was not really a good rapper. 
I mean, it's my understanding that he pretty much had to be coached line by line in the studio. And Ice Cube, I think, wrote almost all of his lyrics, uh, like on those classic NWA records. But what Easy E had was this authenticity, you know, of having a legitimate crime background. I also have to say, too, that I think Easy E has like a really cool sounding voice. Like, there's something about Easy E, like when you hear him on a record, like, it doesn't seem like there's any artifice there. Like, he just sounds like a dude from the main streets of Los Angeles talking about his life. Even, like, when the stuff he's talking about is, like, pretty outlandish. Because I feel like NWA, as their career progressed, like, their records kind of got pretty far out there, you know, from reality. But, like, Easy e kind of kept it grounded just by force of his persona. Yeah, and just his past. Like, as Easy e would later point out on diss tracks to Dr. Dre, Dre came from the same neighborhood, but he never had the same street cred that Easy e did. Uh, and Dre, since hearing Grandmaster Flash, he wanted to be a DJ. He hung out at a club called Eve After Dark, which was where many of the West Coast MCs would, would, would rhyme and perform. And it was here that he met future NWA member DJ Yella. And he became a DJ there himself under the name Dr. J at first, after his favorite basketball player, Julius Irving. And that gradually morphed into Dr. Dre, the master of mixology, which sounds like someone who would make like a mean old fashioned or something. <laughs> but I guess master of mixology had a very different meaning at that time. And this club had a small four-track studio in the back room, and that's where Dre and his friends would make early demos. Yeah, you know, like, when you look at Dre and Easy early on, I mean, they almost seem like opposites of each other in terms of, like, what their attributes were. Like, you know, Easy had this authentic background for a gangster rapper, but he wasn't really, like, that great in terms of being a rapper. Whereas Dre was really, like, I think already becoming, like, a musical mastermind. But he was also, I mean, is it fair to say that he was a dork at this time? Like, he was kind of like a nerdy guy. Like, you can Google Dr. Dre and find pictures of him in the group that he was in at this time called the World Class Wrecking Crew. I don't know, have you ever seen these photos? Like, they're wearing, like, these gold lame suits. They're playing, like, keytars. They're, like, wearing... Keytars are very prevalent. They're wearing makeup. I mean, it's not the image that we associate with Dr. Dre or N.W.A. It's pretty corny, you know, looking at it now. And of course, it's, it's like Electro Little Richard. Yeah, exactly. I feel like Easy E had a lot to do with people seeing these photos eventually, because <laughs> like he would eventually, you know, kind of bring these photos out as a way to uh, make fun of Dre, like when they were deep into their feuds. But this was a pivotal moment in Trey's career. Not only was he working with, I think Yellow was in World Class Wrecking Crew with him. He also ended up hooking up with this really talented rapper and writer named Ice Cube when Ice Cube was only 16, and they worked on a song together called Cabbage, and that was the beginning of their collaboration. Did you hear the story about like how Dre and Easy kind of got together? Apparently, like Dre had like a parking ticket, and he needed Easy to like help him get out of it. Right. And then just as sort of like to repay the favors, like, all right, fine, I'll help produce some songs for that little label that you're developing. And and that little label that Easy was developing became Ruthless Records, which was home to NWA and became a really pivotal label in the hip hop scene, especially for West Coast, wouldn't you say? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, this really was the beginning, I think, of like the West Coast having a real presence in hip hop. I mean, before then, you know, like in the early 80s, it was very much based on the East. But as we get to the end of the 80s and into the 90s, the West Coast is going to really make their presence felt. So once Easy e decides to get out of drug dealing and go into music full time, he took his profits and formed Ruthless Records. And to help him run it, he asked this guy, Jerry Heller. And Jerry Heller is kind of like generally viewed as the snake in this story. He's like a really polarizing figure usually cast as the villain, but also cited as a really crucial figure in the band's development. And, you know, both of these are probably true. 
I think he's probably mostly responsible for getting the bands to break outside of the West Coast and certainly outside of their neighborhood. But I think he also tore the band apart. Uh, when he first started managing NWA, he was a, a like something like a 40-year veteran of the music industry, and he represented all kinds of people. Van Morrison, CSNY, Otis Redding, The Who, Black Sabbath. The list is like really extensive. And um, in later years, the story was put around that Heller sought out NWA specifically to like take advantage of these inexperienced men and try to rip them off basically with industry contracts that he knew a lot about and they didn't. But he would say in his uh, in his memoir that it was actually Easy who sought him out and not the other way around. And that Easy actually paid somebody, I think like seven hundred and fifty dollars, to make an introduction to him because he knew Jerry Heller had all these contacts into the the you know the Hollywood music industry scene, and he wanted to make this band big. And he was he was first and foremost a businessman. I would read later on that he was generally described Easy was as like a a businessman who happened to rap. And so seeking out Heller was his way to bring the band to the next level. So Heller becomes NWA's manager in 1987. And look, if you listen to our show, you know that like artists having managers that they don't trust, it's a common story in music history. Like NWA is far from the first group to have this. But I think the reason why this ended up being such a divisive moment in the group's history is that from Dre's perspective, he really looked at Jerry Heller as being Easy's guy. And if Jerry had any loyalties at all, it wasn't to the group overall. It was always going to be to Easy. And he really felt, and I think with justification, like as the group's career progressed, that oftentimes Dre was getting the short end of the stick financially while Easy was making out really well with his good friend Jerry Heller. And, you know, Dre said later on that he felt that Heller's strategy in the group was basically divide and conquer, that he could split up the group's loyalties and in that way he could weaken the other members and it could just consolidate the power with Easy and Jerry. And it seems like in a way that's what is going to happen as uh, we move forward here. The first NWA recordings were born out of a song called Boys in the Hood that he tried to give to his Ruthless Records signee, HBO, who turned it down. So uh, Cube, Dre, E formed the first version of NWA to record it themselves. And this was uh, followed up by Panic Zone, which was included in the 1987 compilation NWA and the Posse, which is kind of like a compilation party-oriented jam record kind of thing. And NWA was still in developing stages, and they're only on, I think, like three of the tracks on the album. The songs are Panic Zone, 8-Ball, and Dope Man. But it was the first collaboration with Arabian Prince, DJ Yella, Dr. Dre, and Ice Cube, and E. It was the first time they were all together. The thing about that record, though, is that I feel like most people didn't hear about that album until the next NWA record, which, of course, is Straight Outta Compton, which drops in August of 1988. This is really, I think... Not the official first record, but it's like the true first record for NWA. It's where they really become like the band that we know, like this dangerous, innovative hip-hop group that is uh, going to just change really like the face of music at that time. This is a really crucial summer in hip-hop history because, you know, you have Straight Outta Compton that comes out in August. And then two months before that, you have Public Enemy putting out what I think many people consider to be their classic record. It takes a nation of millions to hold us back. And it really is the peak of, like, this sort of angry, provocative, and very political type of hip-hop. For NWA, of course, the signature song ends up being Fuck the Police, which is, I think, still an anthem for people. That's still probably the best-known protest song about police brutality that hip-hop has ever spawned. That song actually resulted in a letter sent to the group from the FBI. I mean, what is the implication of that letter? It was like basically like a warning letter to them, right? I mean, like, what were they warning them about exactly? 
Basically, I mean, what I had heard was that it was basically a rogue member of the FBI that it wasn't like a formal thing from sent on high from them. It was just like one member who happened to work for the FBI put it on FBI stationery, basically. And he was kind of warning them to stop releasing these inflammatory songs because it was basically like a notch below like incitement to riot. And I think the song, like, they got in legal trouble from performing it a lot of gigs, too, for the same reason. It was almost like a, a Lenny Bruce kind of thing where they uh, there would be police in the wings and stuff. Um, yeah, that was really strange. I, and it's on display at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And, uh, yeah, it was, it was more of like a low-level bureaucrat, I think, who actually sent that. But still, the impact was, I mean, the press value of that alone was pretty impressive. It was sent to their label and I think the band members themselves. Well, I was going to say, like, I mean, could you ask for better publicity than getting a letter from the FBI? I I wonder, like, you know, if this rogue agent was, like, a fan of the world-class wrecking crew, and he was just (laughs) upset at this, like, more sort of, like, you know, risque turn. Yeah, it's like, where are the keytars, man? Like, I, I, I miss... I miss the gold lame suits. I, I'm not sure about this new image. That's my theory anyway about that rogue agent. If like Public Enemy was like the clash, I feel like NWA was like Guns N' Roses at this time. You know, like NWA, they called their music reality rap. But I do think that there was this kind of like over the top element to like what they did, like where they took the reality of like street violence in Los Angeles and they just like blew it up to like a grand scale. So, like, kids in the suburbs that were, like, just totally attracted to NWA, they loved the danger of this group. They were just sucked in to some of the reality and also, like, some of the fantasy of those records. And if I can continue this analogy, I would say that, like, Easy e was, like, the Axl Rose of NWA. Because he was, like, the most colorful and the most charismatic and, like, really, like, I think kind of the most dangerous one in the band. You know, like Ice Cube, again, he was doing a lot of the writing. Dre was handling the music. But I think Easy, along with being the businessman, he just felt the most like he could have actually been one of the characters that they were like talking about in their songs. Like he felt like he was actually from the streets in a way that maybe those other guys weren't. And I remember at the time, it, it seemed like Easy, almost from like the jump of that record, was being set aside as a standalone star. Like just three months after Straight Out of Compton comes out, he puts out his first solo record, and it's really the only solo record that he completed during his lifetime. That, of course, is Easy Does It. That album goes on to go double platinum. So that record is a big hit on its own. So not only is Easy, you know, a star in NWA, but he's already kind of establishing his own career on the side. Now, as we see so often on this show, relatively instant success is almost never a good thing for a young band. And the success of Straight Out of Compton underscored the fact that the bandmates weren't getting the money that they felt they'd been owed. And uh, as we were talking earlier, the contracts that Jerry Heller put together vastly favored E as the head of the record label rather than the rest of the group. And it was a pretty large group, too. So Ice Cube in particular is the one who really has a problem with the way that the money's being arranged because he's the chief writer of this huge album. Plus, he wrote most of Easy es debut album, too. And he's still living at home with his parents and doing the dishes and stuff. Meanwhile, Jerry Heller and E are living in huge mansions and driving luxury cars. And it looked awful lot like they were all getting rich off of his work, which they were. So by the middle of 1989, Ice Cube had received $32,000 in album royalties and a little bit less than that amount for performing on the on NWA's first national tour, which is, I mean, laughable. It's a pittance for, you know, a multi-platinum record. Yeah, I mean, he's basically being paid like what you would be paid to like manage like a fast food restaurant, you know? 
I mean, not the kind of money that you would expect from the writer of like, you know, a couple of like platinum records. So like Ice Cube actually ends up leaving the group pretty early on. And initially, like Dre is kind of lashing out at Cube about this. He has loyalty to NWA. But then Dre starts to realize that he also is not making the kind of money that he should be making. Because along with, you know, producing NWA, he's also like working on like the Easy E record. He's like producing like the DOC, Michelle A, like all these hit records and not making a lot of money. Like Jerry Heller, by his own admission, like in an article uh, that Rolling Stone did on this, he said that like Dre only made like $86,000 from all of the production work that he was doing for Ruthless Records. And the thing here, I mean, it's interesting because like Dre, of course, he would accuse Jerry Heller of ripping him off. But it's like, if you sign a bad deal, are you being ripped off or have you just not taken care of your own business? I mean, that seems like the issue here. And it it's kind of like a hazy distinction to make because obviously like when musicians first get into the business, many times they don't know much about contracts or like how to negotiate like the best deals for themselves. And, you know, people like Jerry Heller take advantage of that. They heavily tilt the scales so that they make way more money than the artist who is actually doing the work. And I think, again, from Dre's perspective, he was angry at Jerry Heller about this. But I think he also felt betrayed by Eazy-E because he felt that Eazy was essentially working in concert with, with Jerry Heller. And it's like, you're my friend, you're my bandmate, and yet you consciously allowed this to happen. You knew that he was going to basically screw me over with this contract and you just let him do it because ultimately you knew that it was the best thing for your bottom line. Exactly. I mean, at the end of the day, he blamed E for bringing this outsider into their midst, into their neighborhood, really. And it's interesting that, you know, for all of the frustration that Ice Cube and Dre felt, they never actually sued Heller for financial malfeasance, which means, like he said, he wasn't legally doing anything wrong. He just put a deal together that heavily favored him, and Dre didn't know any better at this time. And and his associates at this time would say this, too. Like, he really didn't read contracts. It really wasn't, you know, his thing. He was more of a creative. And so, and that came back to haunt him in this case. And Ice Cube ended up leaving the group right after Straight Outta Compton went global. And he was the biggest star in the band at this time, and he was the best position to go solo. And his first album, 1990's America's Most Wanted, went to number one in just two weeks. And he didn't mention the bad blood in NWA directly in this album. I think it's important to note. But that would that would happen later. Yeah, it's interesting with Q because there's this long gestation process that takes place between him and NWA, like after he left, like where, you know, we're going to see this. That NWA is going to be much more aggressive about attacking Cube. And Cube is, like, really not going to respond for a long time until he, like, really responds, like, in the most vicious way possible. But we're getting a little ahead of ourselves with that. I just want to say for now, like, Ice Cube is, like, one of my favorite rappers of all time, especially of this era. I mean, he's got a great voice. He's a great writer. And he was, like, a genuinely dangerous character. Like, I don't know, like, if you've listened to albums like Death Certificate or The Predator or America's Most Wanted. I mean, he could be, like, a really menacing presence on his records and in his music videos. And it was just riveting. And I feel like him leaving NWA, even though you still had Dre and Eazy-E in that group, it really was like a death blow to that group artistically. Like, I don't think they were ever as good without him as they were with him in the band. Oh, no. And I'm not on the mic and not with his, without his writing, too, especially. So NWA do not afford Cube the same courtesy. The next disc they put out is an EP, 100 Miles and Running. 
The title track includes a diss track of Ice Cube. We started with five, but yo, one couldn't take it. So now it's four because the fifth couldn't make it. And the video for the song depicted the remaining members of NWA together in a jail cell while an Ice Cube lookalike is released, which is uh, (laughs) not particularly subtle. There's another track on the album that refers to him as Benedict Arnold, uh, you know, the famous uh, uh, traitor of the revolutionary era. But really, uh, Cube gets his revenge on Kill at will. Well, not really, though, because like I feel like he's still like fairly passive aggressive on this record. Like he's like a little more deliberate. Like there's that skit at the end of the record called I Gotta Say What Up, where Ice Cube is doing this like fake radio interview where he's talking about some of the great like rap groups of the era, like Public Enemy, Ghetto Boys, people like that. And then there's a question where they say, Since you went solo, what's up with the rest of your crew? And then he hangs up. So, like, The implication being that, like, you know, someone's asking about NWA and he's not even going to answer the question. So, like, not really going after them still at this point, especially considering, like, the direct shots that NWA was taking at him at the time. He was still, like, playing it pretty cool. NWA continued to prod him on their second full-length album. And it really, the the animosity gets even more clear. I mean, there's derogatory references to Ice Cube found in several songs. There's the interlude, A Message to B.A., Benedict Arnold, echoes the beginning of Ice Cube's song Turn Off the Radio from America's Most Wanted. And he's addressed by name in the same track. And then the band members just throw a torrent of abuse at him in their lyrics and say, when we see your ass, we're going to cut your hair off and fuck you with a broomstick by MC Ren. I love uh, that. So, yeah, yeah, that's, that's again, not terribly subtle. So this is really when Cube decides to go nuclear. Yeah, he's going to go nuclear here. I Before we get to that, though, I just want to say, like, I realized that I learned about Benedict Arnold from listening to rap records in, like, the late <laughs> 80s or early 90s. Because, like, all these Benedict Arnold references, like, on these NWA records, I was like, you know, I would have had no idea who that was if, like, this historical figure was not being brought up like on these albums. I just love the fact that like they brought Benedict Arnold back, like gave him some cultural relevance, you know, at that time. To a whole new generation. Exactly. Likening him to Ice Cube. So you can only call a man Benedict Arnold so many times before he finally lashes out. And finally, Ice Cube, you know, we get to the album Death Certificate and he unleashes the song No Vaseline, which is one of the most notorious diss tracks ever. And I feel like Ice Cube must have just been like seething for like two or three years. You know, he's taking all this crap from his former bandmates, the people that he felt like had screwed him over, especially Eazy-E, and playing it relatively cool. And finally, he's like, I've had enough. I'm going to unleash a torrent of just, again, devastating blows. And look, I can't quote too many of the lyrics of this song because, well, for one thing, there's like a fair amount of like anti-Semitism and homophobia in this song, I hate to say. It's like it hasn't really aged well in uh, that regard. Although even at the time, a lot of people criticized the song for those elements of it. But the gist of No Vaseline, essentially, is that the guys in NWA are soft. They look like bozos. They're basically (laughs) stooges for Jerry Heller. Ice Cube believes that he's a man with the guts, you know, to go out on his own, to make his own money, while the guys in NWA are, you know, still stuck under the thumb of this crooked manager. He accuses them of living in an all-white neighborhood, basically just calling them a bunch of phonies, and the overall idea is that these guys are getting screwed with no Vaseline. And you can (laughs) kind of figure out... Infer, yeah. 
what that means. But yeah, this is like just a devastating diss track. I, I'm, it's hard for me to think of many songs that like are like meaner than this about you know, like like on our show. You know, we've had some like definite mean moments and songs, you know, artists talking about other artists saying disparaging things. But like no Vaseline just takes that to like another level. And sort of adding salt to NWA's wounds, I mean, at this point, they're almost a spent force. They're basically finished. Because in the early 90s, Dr. Dre had become tight with uh, with NWA's bodyguard and a one-time L.A. Rams player called Suge Knight. And Knight was trying to break into the music industry in a bigger way. And he started a music publishing firm. And he got his first big profit, according to music legend, by having Vanilla Ice sign over royalties from his hit song Ice Ice Baby by persuading Ice that he'd use material from Suge's own client, a guy by the name of Mario Johnson. And... Allegedly, he persuaded Vanilla Ice to sign these rights over by threatening to drop him off the 15th floor of his hotel. There are several stories that my favorite involves Suge actually dangling him over the balcony by his ankles. Don't know if that's true. I love that. I've only seen that in movies. Like, I mean, I didn't know people actually did that in real life. Like, dangling people off a balcony. I want that to be true. I'm going to pretend that it's true, even though I feel like there's probably an element of bullshit to that. Yeah, I mean, this was just one of Suge Knight's many questionable but very effective business practices. And he becomes close to Dr. Dre through NWA Associate, the DOC, around this period. And he's hearing Dre's complaints about Eazy-E and Jerry Heller. And Suge says, well, you know, I'll take a look at the Ruthless Records books for you. And he convinces Dre that he is indeed getting ripped off. And furthermore, he convinces Dre to go into business with him. So Dre goes to Easy e in 1991 and gives him an ultimatum. Either Jerry Heller goes or I go. And Easy picked Jerry and Dre went with Suge. All right, hang on. We'll be right back with more Rivals. My name is Johnny B. Good, and I'm the host of the new podcast, Creating a Con, the story of BitCon. Over this nine-part series, I'll explore the life and crimes of my best friend, Ray Trapani. I always wanted to be a criminal. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. You see, Ray has this unique ability to find loopholes and exploit them. They collected $30 million. There were headlines about it. His company, Centratech, was one of the hottest crypto startups in 2017. It was going to change the world until it didn't. I came into my office, opened my email, and the subject heading was FBI request. It was only a matter of time before the truth came out. You can only fake it till you make it for so long before they find out that your Harvard degree is not so crimson. How could you sit there and do something that you know will objectively cause more harm in the world? Listen to Creating a Con, the story of BitCon, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I am... The Ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the Ferryman of Souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. All 12 episodes of The Passage are available now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts.
I never thought I'd take my three young kids to Sicily to solve a century-old mystery, but that's what I'm doing in my new podcast, The Sicilian Inheritance. Join us as we travel thousands of miles on the beautiful and crazy island of Sicily, as I trace my roots back through a mystery for the ages and untangle clues within my family's origin story, which has morphed like a game of telephone through the generations. Was our family matriarch killed in a land deal gone wrong? Or was it by the Sicilian Mafia? A lover's quarrel? Or was she, as my father believed, a witch? Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So at this point, it's Suge Knight's job to get Dre out of his contract. And of course, Easy isn't going to let Dre leave because Dre's a very valuable commodity to him. So Suge is going to go, I guess, the vanilla ice route of dangling people out of uh, balconies. But really, he's going to go the extra mile here in his dealings with Easy E. Basically, there's this incident like where Dre invited Easy to a studio to have a meeting, presumably to talk about business. So Easy shows up and turns out that Dre is not there. Guess who is there? Suge Knight and like a gang of goons holding baseball bats and pipes. Now, I don't know about you, Jordan, but like I'm kind of a a scaredy cat, I I think you could say. If I walked into a room and I saw Suge Knight and a bunch of guys holding baseball bats and pipes. I'd sign anything. Yeah, I think I would like fill a diaper. Uh, You know, I would be very (laughs) upset uh, over that. And I think I would probably give him whatever he wanted at that moment. But, like, easy to his credit, did not give in. He could see that Suge was just trying to intimidate him. So he's like, no, I'm not going to let Dre go. So then Suge says, and this is crazy, he says that he has kidnapped Jerry Heller and he has him, like, tied up in a van somewhere. Which, like, <laughs> I don't think that was true, right? Like, he did no, not. it's a very act- easily disprovable, yeah. Right. So, again, easy. he's like, no, I'm not going to let Dre out of his contract. Again, he probably could tell that Suge was lying about that. Then Suge says, I know where your mama stays. And he actually like writes down Easy's mom's address on a piece of paper and hands it to him. The lowest blow that yeah. the lowest blow you can have, really. I mean, just I can't an, believe that seems like a, a way a place you would not go. Just just, you know, just as your personal code of conduct. That seems like a line you do not cross. And to the idea that like Dre implicitly authorized this just adds insult to injury. I mean, this is your friend who has, you know, employed this bully, essentially, into threatening your mom over a business deal. I mean, this is like really, really bad stuff. But, you know, this is the thing that convinces Easy to finally let Dre out of his contract. So that is how he was able to leave Ruthless Records, because this guy, Suge Knight, essentially threatened Easy es mother. And there was a story later on, uh, Jerry Heller told the story, that like Easy actually wanted to kill Suge Knight and like Jerry Heller talked him out of it. And then Heller said that he regretted that he talked Easy <laughs> out of killing Suge Knight. You know, like that's how bad this got. I mean, it was pretty bad, but it could have actually been much worse. So this really ugly incident is a genesis of Death Row Records. It would eventually sign Dre, Snoop Dogg, Tupac. They become, you know, their aim at the beginning was to become the Motown of the 90s, and they pretty much got there. And in August of 1991, Eazy-E filed a state complaint against Dre and Death Row Records and Suge Knight, basically alleging that all these defendants had used duress and menace to get Eazy-E to void Dre's contract. And, you know, basically said, you can't get out of a contract by, like, threatening my mom and threatening me with a baseball bat. 
the suit was dismissed, but the terms of the departure meant that Eazy-E would, would continue to profit off of Dr. Dre. He maintained the percentage of his royalties, which meant that as much as Dr. Dre hated him, he still owned him to a certain extent. And uh, making things even worse, the lawsuit torpedoed Death Row's initial plan of being acquired by Sony. They ended up being acquired by Interscope through Warner Brother Records instead. So even though E lost the battle of keeping Dr. Dre on his label, he scored a really valuable victory of still making money off of his former friend. It's interesting to me that at this point, you're really going to start to see the scales tip toward Dre's side. And the way that he's going to get one over on Easy is by using his music, not street tactics. Because... In 1992, he puts out this album called The Chronic, which is, of course, one of the biggest rap records ever made, one of the great albums of the 1990s. And, you know, I remember when that album came out, like, you could not go anywhere, whether it was you know, like a fast food restaurant or the swimming pool or the grocery store or on television without hearing songs from that album for like the better part of like two years. And I feel like that album went a long way toward taking this beef between Dre and Easy, which was something that, you know, like if you were into hip hop, you knew about if you read like rap magazines, you were on top of it. But if you were just like, like a normal music fan, you know, someone in the middle of the country who wasn't all that well versed in this stuff, you didn't really hear about it until The Chronic came out. And especially the songs Fuck With Dre Day and Everybody Celebrating and Bitches Ain't Shit. Like those two songs, I feel like defined the conflict between these guys. And of course, it painted it in a way that was like 100% pro Dre and very anti Easy E. And he ended up looking terrible, like from this album. And I think it really kind of defined how people looked at it like from then on. Yeah, I mean, especially Fuck With Dre Day. For me, I always thought that song was like the final scene in The Godfather for Dre. It's, <laughs> it's the moment when he takes out all of his major enemies. He fires shots at the East Coast rapper Tim Dog, Uncle Luke of Two Live Crew, Ice Cube, and of course, Easy e And the extremely un-PC lyrics mostly involved attacking E with various homosexual slurs and accusations. Uh, used to be my homie, used to be my ace. Now I want to slap the taste out your mouth. Make you bow down to the row, death row, fucking me, now I'm fucking you, little hoe. It's, it's just a, a small selection of, of the, uh, the extremely brutal lyrics. And, you know, the song is, like, bad enough, but I feel like the video, like, really took it to another level. Like, I don't know if you've seen this video, but, like, there's this character named Sleazy E who, like, has, like, the Jerry <laughs> Carroll hair and he has, like, the sunglasses on. Very clearly supposed to be Easy E, and there's also like a manager in there who, like, I mean, I don't know how to say this delicately. He's basically like a caricature of like a Jewish manager. Like, it borders on anti-Semitism. Like the depiction of this manager in the video, and the idea is just to depict Sleazy Z as this like clown who will do anything that his manager wants him to do. And the idea is to basically just make Easy look like a buffoon, you know. And like by the end of the video. He's like living under an overpass, carrying a sign that says, we'll wrap for food. You know, just like a pathetic <laughs> figure in this video. And again, I think, you know, people, you know, if you love NWA, the big thing about Eazy-E was that he was like this cool, tough guy. And you watch this video and like Dre has totally flipped the script on him to make him look weak and pathetic and, you know, like a guy who was on his way out, essentially. He just, like, robbed Eazy-E of, like, all the coolness and the power that he had in NWA and did it on, like, a grand scale. Like, again, this is a song on, like, one of the biggest records of the era. And this music video was, like, on all the time. I mean, it was 
you know, like one of those videos in the early 90s that you like literally saw every 15 minutes on MTV. And I think this song ended up being like a top 10 hit, like on the pop charts. So again, it wasn't just something that like if you were seriously into hip hop that you cared about, this was something that like pop fans now knew about. But they had a very kind of skewed perspective on it. It was about Dre making Easy look terrible. And I think for a lot of people, they didn't really go beyond that. Like, that's all they really knew about it. And that was devastating for Easy. And Dre wasn't even done. This double barrel assault continues with bitches ain't shit. And the bitch in the title for Dre refers to Easy E, or he refers to him by his birth name in the song directly by Eric Wright, which is, again just kind of strips him of any kind of persona that Easy E had made for himself. He's just completely laid bare with his birth name. I thought that was a really telling choice. Uh, and it is a brief rundown of their friendship history, and he hurls a number of other homophobic slurs at him. And uh, again, goes back to basically making him sound like a stooge for Jerry Heller. And he, he mentions the Ruthless Records lawsuit saying, you know, now he's suing because the shit he's doing ain't shit. Bitches can't hang with the street. Found herself short. He always refers to himself by the female pronoun in the song. Now she's taking me to court. So, yes. And that, that is what another hit song from the album, too. So, again, as you said, completely devastating for E's reputation, both musically and just his reputation as, you know, a guy from the streets. Now, of course, when Eazy-E hears this stuff, he's not happy. And you can see how unhappy he is with his next release, which is an EP called It's On Dr. Dre, 187M, Killa. And this album is basically just about how much he hates Dr. Dre and how he wants to kill Dr. Dre. Like, there's eight songs on this record. Five of them are about Dre. The song that stands out to me is the song Real Motherfucking G's. Which, like, in a way, I, I kind of like this song. It's like a pretty good parody of, like, the G-Funk era sound of, like, the chronic. Like, you could tell that he's basically just, like, trying to, like, make fun of that sound and, like, in, in the aesthetic of that record. And, you know, the, the core message of that song basically, again, is that Dr. Dre is a phony. You know, Easy is saying, I'm the real gangster, and Dre is this, like, wimpy guy, and all he does is talk. And uh, in the music video for the song, this is where he dug out those photos we were talking about before of like the world-class wrecking crew where you know dre's wearing the again the gold lemay suit he has the makeup on he's playing a guitar the idea is to make him look foolish essentially in this video the problem for easy is that the chronic was so big and dre at this time really was like a superstar probably the most famous rapper on the planet really at this point and like no one really cared about you know showing embarrassing photos of Dre. Like, I think in reality, like, you know, people love that record because the music was really good. They didn't really, I think, believe that, like, Dre was actually, like, a criminal or something. So to show him in this embarrassing light, I think people ultimately shrugged their shoulders because they're like, well, okay, fine. He looked like that back then, but his record is still really great. So we're going to go with Dre. And I mean, I feel like that EP still like did like fairly well, like sold like a couple hundred thousand copies in its first week, which would have been fine on its own. But it just like paled in comparison to what Dre did on The Chronic. And really, at the end of the day, like the record sales were like the most devastating message of all. Like Dre could just like basically point and say scoreboard, you know, at the end of the day and <laughs> show that he had won, you know, this part of the battle. Yeah, I think the EP made him look petty. I mean, you make a really great comparison in your book about how easy he was basically like Dave Mustaine in the Metallica Megadeth uh, feud. Or it's just like you're trying way too hard. Like, how about you make a good record? And like Dre is doing and not make, you know, two thirds of it be about how much you hate this dude. 
And I think that that was really at the core of, of Easy e was that his reputation as a musician was not great at this period. I mean, he needed the lyrical wit of Ice Cube and he needed Dre's beats. And, you know, he wasn't really challenging himself. He wasn't teaming up with producers that would push him. A lot of his records in this era were sounding like stuff that N.W.A. had done four or five years earlier. And also his reputation just in the hip-hop community wasn't good because apparently he was at this point deemed very difficult to work with and he'd alienated himself from many of his friends and former friends and artists. Uh, even his longtime friend MC Ren voiced his dislike for Eazy-E in 1994. He said he, he had a big head and was a wannabe megastar and even suggested that NWA should reunite without Eazy-E. So really at this point, his reputation is kind of in the toilet. I think there was an article in Vibe magazine that kind of said like, you know, is there anyone lower in the hip hop community right now than Eazy-E? And the inference was no. And just the fact that he released this EP that was just filled with uh, just this obsession with Dr. Dre just kind of made him seem weak. You know, it's interesting to contemplate like what would have happened if this rivalry would have taken its course throughout the decade. Like if Eazy-E would have lived and if there would have still been a back and forth or if him and Dre would have found a way to reconcile. Of course, we don't know the answer to that because Eazy-E ended up getting checked into the hospital in early 1995. He had a really bad cough and he was pretty quickly after that diagnosed as having AIDS. And really, like, I think it was like a month later that he like passed away. This was like an incredibly like just rapid turn of events for Eazy. And he ended up, you know, dying at the age of 30, which is just like a incredibly sad you know, story, you know, just to pass away at that age, you know, just incredibly tragic. What emerges out of Easy's death is this story about basically Dre and Easy having this like deathbed reconciliation. And this is a story that Dre himself has told on numerous occasions, though the details like have changed depending on when he's telling it. Like, you know, there's one interview where he actually says that like him and Easy had a phone conversation like two weeks before he went into the hospital where they, you know, talked about old times and even discussed the possibility of like reuniting NWA. And then there's like another story that like, you know, that they saw each other in the hospital and they were able to have this like moment where, you know, they buried the hatchet and made peace before Easy passed. But also, I mean, it seems like Easy was in a coma for like most of the time that he was in the hospital. And it appears that like when Dre was there, that like Easy wouldn't have been conscious. That it just reminds me of like another episode we did about the band where you had Robbie Robertson and Levon Helm. A very similar situation where you have these two guys who had a bitter feud going on for years. And then one of them gets sick, in this case, Levon Helm, and then Robbie Robertson goes to the hospital. And according to Robbie, they have this reconciliation, but was it really a reconciliation if the other guy isn't conscious? Like, that's the mystery of this. Like, I don't know if we'll ever quite know the truth of this, because in a way, you know, I feel like it's a little too convenient for Dre to, like, have this story that, like, they somehow patched it up. Because I feel like there's, like, evidence to the contrary that, like, Easy was still pretty mad at Dre, like, at the end of his life. Yeah, I mean, one of the big points of this is the uh, the posthumous album Straight Off the Streets of Motherfucking Compton. And there are several songs on the album that take shots at death row, old school shit and what would you do? And the music video for Just to Let You Know features a rapper named Eric, easy his real name, beefing with another rapper who believes that Eric ripped him off and uh, and then this other rapper gets shot. So the other rapper clearly being Dr. Dre, 
it kind of seems like if they had reconciled, at least Easy es estate would have maybe gone a little easier on the Death Row team. I don't know. Yeah, that seems questionable to me. Yeah, it's weird. It's definitely weird. I mean, Dre definitely forgave him. I think it remains to be seen whether or not E actually forgave Dre. And it's worth noting, over the years, many people in Easy es circle have come forward to say that they don't believe his death was accidental. Uh, Jerry Heller has said as much. He said he thinks that it was foul play. One of uh, Easy es protégés, BG Knockout, uh, had a song, In My Prime, in 2011, which he raps, The way my big homie went down, he didn't deserve it. They say he died of AIDS, but Easy was cold murdered. Another of Easy es Ruthless Records mentees, uh, MC Frost, uh, believes he was given uh, tainted acupuncture needles, which is something I've never heard of. Uh, but the general consensus is that people feel that Suge Knight, that human lightning rod for murder conspiracies, was involved. And Suge didn't really help his case when he uh, he gave an appearance after getting out of jail in 2003 on Jimmy Kimmel Live. Have you seen this? Yeah, he, I mean, it goes on. And like, by the way, like this conspiracy theory just seems ridiculous. Like he's being shot with HIV with like a tainted it's pretty out there. hypodermic needle. It doesn't make any sense. But then you have no. Suge Knight going on Jimmy Kimmel Live. And, like, basically confirming it. I mean, he says they have a new thing out. They get blood from somebody with AIDS and they shoot you with it. That's a slow death. The easy E thing. You know what I mean? God. And, like, uh, like what a good dude, by the way. Shook right. Knight. Like, what, what, a, what, a, what a gentleman. I mean, look, I, I, I'm inclined to believe that he was trolling with that. I don't really yeah. think that he killed Easy e um, And if he had, I don't think he would have, like, joked about it on Jimmy Kimmel. On Jimmy Kimmel, yeah. Not the smartest thing to do if that were actually true. I think what is definitely beyond doubt here is that I think for Dre, it became very important after Eazy-E died that he essentially changed the narrative of their relationship. Because again, you had this moment in the early 90s where Dre and Eazy were really defined by this bitter public conflict that they had. And, and again, really by those songs on The Chronic. I really think that those songs did more than anything to sort of like fix the public's perception of like what was going on between these two guys. So just as Dre defined Easy in his records, he also tried to kind of redefine Easy on his subsequent records and music videos. Like there's that video for uh, I Need a Doctor from 2011, where he's like, it shows Dr. Dre like standing at Easy es grave. And it, like the idea basically of the video is that like Easy es like this saint. And Dr. Dre has just been struggling for so many years with grief over Easy es death. And look, I don't want to call into question his grief. I'm sure that he felt a lot of different emotions about Easy after he died and losing a friend, especially at such a young age, must have been difficult. But, and maybe this is just the cynic in me, there did seem to be sort of a self-serving aspect to this, where by using this, the specter of Easy e that Dre in some way was also making himself look noble in this music video. Which, by the way, that music video is ridiculous. Like, that is such a silly music video and like that song also I think is like pretty trash but yeah it, it just seemed almost like he was using easy as like a convenient symbol to express his own sort of like angst and milk that for dramatic effect in this video I still feel weird about the uh, 2015 NWA film straight out of Compton I know you and I feel differently about this I feel like it was almost another way that Dre tried to rewrite the narrative because I thought that easy was portrayed as likable but kind of naive and in the film, Dre kind of 
is the one motivating a lot of choices. I mean, Dre gives him the idea to form Ruthless Records in the movie and to record Boys in the Hood themselves. I don't know. Everything in the movie to me seems like it was Dre's idea. And I think in real life that wasn't true. I mean, Easy was the one driving the ship. So I don't know. It's hard because Dre and Q both produced straight out of Compton and Easy isn't there to tell his side. So, I, I, you know, in a way, I thought it was kind of their way of rewriting the narrative a bit. Yeah. I mean, again, this idea of Dre and I guess in this instance, Q being self-serving, I definitely think there's an issue there. Although I think my issue with the movie in terms of the relationship with Eazy-E is just like how I think it kind of whitewashes again the genuine conflict that was going on. Because I think in the movie, yeah, Dre is perceived as the protagonist and, and maybe that can be perceived as like a slight on Easy. But again, I think Easy for the most part is like a pretty likable guy in the film. And it also, I think, really shows the friendship that existed between these guys and really puts the emphasis on that. And you don't really see all the negative stuff that happened. And, you know, again, is that a self-serving whitewash or is it someone who is trying to put his past behind him and focus on the good things and not try to sort of exacerbate and, and the conflicts and picking at old scars, you know? I mean, it's probably a little bit of both. And while, you know, the music historian in me, the lover of feuds, you know, doesn't like it when people whitewash the real conflicts that happened. I can understand how, you know, decades after the fact, you just want to remember your friend in a positive way and not dwell on all that old negativity. We're going to take a quick break to get a word from our sponsor before we get to more Rivals. My name is Johnny B. Good, and I'm the host of the new podcast, Creating a Con, the story of BitCon. Over this nine-part series, I'll explore the life and crimes of my best friend, Ray Trapani. I always wanted to be a criminal. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. You see, Ray has this unique ability to find loopholes and exploit them. They collected $30 million. There were headlines about it. His company, Centratech, was one of the hottest crypto startups in 2017. It was going to change the world, until it didn't. I came into my office, opened my email, and the subject heading was FBI request. It was only a matter of time before the truth came out. You can only fake it till you make it for so long before they find out that your Harvard degree is not so crimson. How could you sit there and do something that you know will objectively cause more harm in the world? Listen to Creating a Con, the story of BitCon, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I am... The Ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the Ferryman of Souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. All 12 episodes of The Passage are available now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I never thought I'd take my three young kids to Sicily to solve a century-old mystery, but that's what I'm doing in my new podcast, The Sicilian Inheritance. Join us as we travel thousands of miles on the beautiful and crazy island of Sicily as I trace my roots back through a mystery for the ages and untangle clues within my family's origin story. 
which has morphed like a game of telephone through the generations. Was our family matriarch killed in a land deal gone wrong? Or was it by the Sicilian mafia? A lover's quarrel? Or was she, as my father believed, a witch? Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, we've reached the part of our episode where we give the pro side of each part of the rivalry. We'll do the pro Dr. Dre side first. I mean, look, Dr. Dre, he needs no introduction. He is one of the great hip-hop producers of all time, maybe the greatest. He was the sonic architect of those classic NWA records, and of course, he's the guy behind The Chronic, one of the great albums of the 1990s. Also, you know, I think he was right on some level to be mad at Easy for how he was unfairly compensated early on, though I think in the end, he definitely got his revenge from a PR standpoint. You know, again, I think that like <laughs> when we think about this rivalry first and foremost, we think of the Fuck With Dre Day video. I mean, to me, that is like the defining document of what this rivalry was, even though it's incredibly unfair to Easy, Dre had the loudest microphone, so he got to write history and basically make his friend look like a buffoon. Even though, again, in retrospect, after Easy E died, he tried to rewrite that history. I mean, like you said, Dr. Dre pretty much invented the West Coast hip hop sound. He's a genius level producer who excels at making beats through live instrumentation, which allows for greater musical flexibility that translates his artist's message and meaning better. He's elevated the likes of Snoop Dogg and Eminem, The Game, Kendrick, and 50 Cent through his mentorship, and he's bazillionaire through his media empire and, and headphones. Just incredible figure. What he lacks in Ice Cube's lyricism, he makes up for in his sonic scope. Absolute genius. Yeah, I wonder if he's going to be ultimately remembered more as a headphone magnate than a <laughs> music producer, since I, that's been his gig for the past uh, many years. Going over to the pro Easy e side, you know, while Dre was the musical force behind NWA and Ice Cube was the lyrical force, I think Easy e for me represented the idea of NWA. You know, he was the guy who actually lived the life. And I still feel like he had like one of the coolest voices in hip hop at that time. And he had like a really charismatic persona where he had a danger to him. But I also feel like he had kind of like a lovable aspect, maybe because he was like this short guy with a Jerry Curl haircut. You know, <laughs> there was something about him that like yeah, he could be menacing, but he was also like kind of like the cute gangster next door. So as a child of like the late 80s and early 90s, I'm always going to have some love for Easy e I always feel like, you know, with the Beach Boys, they always said Dennis Wilson was sort of the soul of the band because he was the one who surfed. Like, even if he wasn't the most musically gifted, he was sort of the one who lived that life. Like you said, I think that's Easy es role in, in this group. And, you know, I mean, without Easy putting together Ruthless Records and enlisting Jerry Heller to help them navigate the music industry, I don't think NWA would have had the culture impact that they did. And, I mean, sure, he wasn't the mastermind of the sound or the words, but I think he was the one who ran the ship and kept everything in line. And like I said earlier, he was essentially a businessman who rapped. And though his solo artistic output isn't very impressive, he discovered acts like Bone Thugs and Harmony and Dresta. And in his lifetime, he was, I think, arguably the most successful of the NWA members from a, a financial standpoint, starting his own company with his own money and owning a sizable chunk of Dr. Dre's output. Uh, and, you know, plus, if we're being extremely petty, he never caved to Dre, you know? I mean, he was his own man to the end. That's the thing about this is that, you know, if we assume that, you know, for whatever reason that they didn't actually reconcile, you know, that Dre is just telling this story about them reconciling, but Eazy-E was actually like, that he was still angry. And even when he was in a coma, he was angry at Dr. Dre. 
then like, yeah, he did win because he never gave in to Dre and Dre ended up saying all these nice things about him after he died. (laughs) So maybe that was like the ultimate like winner move for like Easy e Like I'm going to actually die in order to win this rivalry. So that's one theory here, maybe, that puts Easy e out ahead. If we look at these two guys together, I think, you know, on this show, I think we've seen a lot of examples of two rivals who existed in the same group who, for all of their fighting, they ended up complementing each other really well. And I think this is another example of that, like where... Obviously, with Dre, he was a great producer, but, you know, maybe he was kind of like a nerdy guy early on, and he wouldn't have been able to make it in a gangster rap group if it weren't for someone like Eazy-E, who had the drive, and he also had the backstory that could give that group the authenticity that it needed. So, yeah, it just seemed like they had a great partnership for the short time that they were together. Yeah, without Dre's talent, Eazy wouldn't have made it. Without Eazy's focus, I don't think Dre would have made it either. You know, Jordan, I have to say that, like, as we reach another end of uh, of a Rivals episode, that I uh, I think this is such a great opportunity for you to express yourself. <laughs> there it is. Uh, I, I never know when it's coming. I wait, I wait with bated breath for the entire episode. That, that felt a little more hackneyed than usual. I feel like I had to do like a long setup for it, and uh, I'm not sure if the payoff was worth it. But, you know, it's part of what we do on this show now. I feel like there's the fans out there that want the pun at the end. Even though I don't want to do the pun, I'm doing it for the fans. So hopefully you all enjoyed that terrible pun. You are a chronic punner, Stephen. Oh, there we go. We got nah, another one. Nah, nah, that's okay. Thank you for listening to this episode of Rivals. We will be back with more beefs and feuds and long-simmering resentments next week. Rivals is a production of iHeartRadio. The executive producers are Sean Titone and Noel Brown. The supervising producers are Taylor Shacoin and Tristan McNeil. The producer is Joel Hatstadt. I'm Jordan Runtog. And I'm Stephen Hyden. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a review. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Johnny B. Good the host of the podcast Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin. This podcast dives deep into the story of Ray Trapani and his company Centratech. I'll explore how three 20-somethings built a company out of lies, deceit, and greed. I've been saying since a very young age that I was going to be a millionaire. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. Listen to Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. My whole life, I've been told this one story about my family, about how my great-great-grandmother was killed by the mafia back in Sicily. I was never sure if it was true, so I decided to find out. And even though my Uncle Jimmy told me I'd only be making the vendetta worse, I'm going to Sicily anyway. Come to Italy with me to solve this 100-year-old murder mystery. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I am the Ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the Ferryman of Souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. Binge the season of The Passage now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts.